Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Dr. Mariah Whitehead, and she's with the Open Space Institute, and she's the head project manager. Is that your title? You know, I just had a title change to oh, okay. uh, vice president and director of the Southeast. Okay. We'll get into what that entails in, in just a moment, and we're going to be talking about the Open Space Institute and what it's doing in South Carolina and the rest of the country. So, Mariah, now that you're vice president for <laughs> the, the Southeast, let's explain to our listeners what the Open Space Institute is. Absolutely. Well, the Open Space Institute is one of the many incredible conservation organizations that serve South Carolina. We're based in New York. So Open Space has been around for about 40 years and has really made a slow progression out of New York and is now a major land trust that covers the entire eastern United States. Okay. So the mission of Open Space Institute is to protect scenic, natural, and historic landscapes and to provide public enjoyment, conserve habitat, working lands, and sustain communities. And how does that differ from other organizations we've already got in South Carolina, the Audubon Society and the folks along the coast, upcountry forever? How does this differ? I love that you asked that, Walter. So... In South Carolina, maybe more than anywhere, conservation really is a team sport. So we work alongside, generally in partnership with just our myriad of other conservation partners out there. And so you've named a few. We've got amazing advocacy groups like the Coastal Conservation League and Upstate Forever. We've got all of our land trust groups that are sometimes working in specific counties or regions and not statewide. And then we've got national organizations like Audubon and TNC. And I look at it because of my um, training as a scientist as almost like an ecological niche, that we're a community of folks. We've all got a little niche that we fit into Open Space Institute works on large, complicated projects a lot of times, and we work specifically in the southeast on projects that result in public land conservation. So we're not administering conservation easements. Well, Senator Chip Campson made a comment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what he said. We call on Open Space Institute when we need a group that can move quickly and has expertise on intractable conservation projects because we know they can get the job done. So you not only provide clearly advice, but you come in with writing checks. Is that correct? That's right. A lot of times Open Space Institute is actually willing to, to go, say, go into title on land that a federal agency or a state agency might want. So we, we have the ability to be a little more nimble on behalf of our agency partners to secure a property that's threatened or maybe already on the market. And we have access to some capital that allows us to do that. And really creative um, project managers that, that generally can go out and find the resources to make those sort of projects happen. Okay. You came to South Carolina about five or six years ago, the Institute did? That's right. Okay. And how large is your staff now? We are a nimble little staff of five folks doing, okay. um, doing a lot of work in South Carolina. So most of the folks that have joined the staff of OSI in South Carolina are really seasoned professionals that have been working in this realm of conservation or land protection and advocacy for 20 years or more. So we had a lot of, of expertise that came into the house. I kind of like to take a segue and, and talk a little bit about you because someone very close to both of us, your dad, sent me an article that the Clemson Alumni Magazine had on you, and you were called an impatient scientist. Do you think that's fair? I, I, do, I do think that's fair. You know, I, um, I was trained as a scientist, and, and I would say that quite a few of us in the conservation world kind of came to it through the study of natural resources. 
So I, um, as you know, share an alma mater with you and studied biology. I was going to ask, what did you major? <laughs> what did you major in at Davidson? I studied biology at Davidson alongside a lot of people that wanted to be pre med. I went on and um, and studied wildlife ecology at the University of Georgia. And then worked with Drew Lanham at Clemson. I know Drew has been a guest with you before. So my master's and PhD were in wildlife resources and then forest resources, but with an emphasis on birds. And through, you know, a decade or more of of doing research and teaching, I really saw that the greatest need um, to protect wildlife habitat and to protect birds was to protect land. And in an earlier life, you were uh, worked with raptors in South Carolina, right? That, that's right. One of my earlier jobs out of grad school was working at the Center for Birds of Prey. You forgot to talk about your work in Australia. <laughs> we can't forget that. <laughs> no, I, I actually, my first job out of college was in um, Australia, up in the northeast corner in Queensland studying rainforest ecology. And that's where I really discovered birds um, as a realm that I wanted to, to go deeper in. And that's an area of the world right now that's got all sorts of ecological problems. That's right. Fire and drought, now too much water, because you said Queensland, right? Right, yeah. right, absolutely. No, and, and add to that invasive species and habitat loss and... It's um, it's pretty hard on the natural systems. Your fascination with, with raptors, you had a kite, the swallowtail kite, that was your favorite. You want to talk about it for a minute? I will always talk about the swallowtail kite. So um, for many years, I actually had the chance to study swallowtail kites. I got to work alongside people like John Seeley, who was our state ornithologist in South Carolina, who I think shared that favorite bird with me. Swallowtail kites are a beautiful white and black raptor. They are absolutely unmistakable. They have a forked tail, and they spend their summers here in South Carolina nesting in our coastal plain, forested wetland swamps. But then they they move out from the swamps to forage during the day over agricultural fields and rice fields. Um, so they really need that complex matrix of habitats that that we're also trying to protect. Uh, are they any threat to to farmers, or do they they feed on squirrels or? Rats or whatever. You know, even more interestingly, they feed on insects primarily. So they, they're they raptors, but they have these small sort of dainty feet. They will group up. There might be 20 or 30 kites foraging on an eruption of June bugs from a field. <laughs> um, so the biggest prey they go after are small vertebrates, like uh, small snakes and animals that they can pick off the tops of trees. Okay, so so a squirrel would really be too big. It would be too big. Oh. Yeah, they're not going to bother with the squirrel. Okay, well, since we've we've got all these alien insect species now, <laughs> they're helping the farmers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's <laughs> because a lot of these fern things that have been coming into the state in the last couple of years is kind of scary. It is scary. Yeah. So when they're not in South Carolina, where are the kites? You know, they, they make their way. They actually leave South Carolina. They're arriving right now. So, so folks are seeing their first kites in South Carolina as we speak. Um, but they, they leave by about mid-August. They're starting to clear out. A lot of them go down to the tip of Florida and will make that jump over to Mexico, over to the Yucatan Peninsula. But then most of them move on through Central America and end up in western Brazil for the winter. Wow. That's right. How, about how long does that migration take place? I mean, how long does it take? It takes weeks. It takes weeks? It does. It takes so weeks. So, I mean, they literally are doing a hop. I mean, they're st- and they're, they're flying a certain place and then they're resting up and then moving on. Is that Yes. And I, th- and I, I love that you've brought this up because it— points out the fact that, you know, we can we can do our part here in protecting kite habitat in South Carolina to know they've got a place to come breed, but then they need those stepping stones all the way. They need what we call stopover habitat 
on through Central America, and then they need their wintering habitat where they land um, in Brazil. And you mentioned Yucatan, and that's an area that's undergoing a lot of development. Right. As as in, you know, even in their in their habitat in Brazil, we have a lot of transformation of what had been grasslands to sugarcane production in an effort to be energy independent in Brazil. And so they're facing obstacles all along the way. I mean and and even as my work has moved more and more into this realm of conservation, I um I make sure and keep a foot in the door in both ed- education, being able to work with, with university students, and in research. And so I love to still take time and get to go out in the field and work with raptors. I go up to a banding station um, at least a few times a month in the fall to help band birds that are, that are migrating. And that means placing little metal Anklets where we can track their movement and better understand their their where, migratory routes. Where's the banding station? It's all the way up um, above Asheville, so up in the mountains where we really have a corridor of of migra- migrating birds coming through in the fall. In the Clemson magazine, they talked about how you came to love the land and you went right back to your home place in Back Swamp near Florence. You want to talk about that? <laughs> Absolutely. I um, I now, as a mother of three, have what I think is a passionate message about about children connecting to the outdoors and to the natural world, being a pathway into caring about the environment as adults and being advocates for for stewardship and land protection. And I think we saw that in our own household. I was raised with three brothers, and all of us care greatly about the natural world, but a lot of it was from just being out there, um, catching frogs and snakes and running wild on a 200-year family farm in Florence County. So I feel very fortunate that I had that experience. I'm always interested about people's college experience, but I'll go, I'll go beyond the Davidson experience to your experience at Clemson. And the professors you had there, their love of the land and nature, they weren't just teaching a course. That is such a great point. Yes, I saw that in in my education, that as I moved into the study of natural resources, that often the, the folks I was getting to learn from and that I was mentored by, um, folks like Drew Lanham and Jim Elliott, who started the Birds Prey Center, that that their connection really went back to early childhood experiences. And, you know, Drew wrote a book called A Home Place. that was all about growing up on, on his family farm in Edgefield, South Carolina. So anyway, as one of my professors would say, we digress. We need to get, we need to get back to the Open Space Institute. So they've been here five years and have you been with them from the very beginning when they came in? You know, we, we've been here seven years now, and I've been with OSI about five of those years. Okay. And they have had an incredible number of projects. I looked at the map, and you've got a great map of what the Institute is doing on the East Coast. And it looks to me, it's outside of New York where you started off. There are probably more projects in South Carolina than anywhere else. I think you're right. I think you're right. We're We're at about... 45 projects in South Carolina in seven years. You know, a lot of times a land transaction takes as much time, whether it's 5,000 acres or five acres. There are a lot of details to be attended to. Anytime you do a single project, um, and we've accomplished about 34,000 acres of protection, but I would say we have almost the same number of projects that we see in front of us in the hopper that we'll be working on over the next several years. So I, there, there was a demonstrated need once we got here for, for OSI. Well, I'm glad you mentioned small projects because there was one project, I think it was three acres. Uh, and, and you mentioned again in your article is it wasn't just with looking at the 10,000-acre tracks. In some case, a very small parcel can be a key component that makes the whole tract work. That's right. Sometimes those those small pieces are their last piece of the puzzle and certainly worth worth the investment and, and the energy it takes to get them done. Mariah, we need to 
pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Mariah Whitehead about the Open Space Institute and her life and career in conservation. In South Carolina, when you would ask the man or woman on the street about conservation in South Carolina, I'm sure the first thing they'd say was the coast, Bulls Bay or Fairlawn Barony or something like that. But in looking at the map of OSI, and that's sort of the acronym for Open Space Institute projects in the state, you've got a cluster of projects up in Pickens County, Lawrence County. So it's it's not just low country, and I'd like you to comment on that. Well, I, I like that you asked that. And yes, we are we are intentionally working across the state. Most of our staff is based in Charleston. And as you say, we have such a, a long history and culture of conservation on the coast and, and the incredible partnerships that have um, allowed that to be sustained for decades now. But we know that it's a statewide need, that there is a goal in the state to see 30% of the land in South Carolina protected by 2050. And we've got folks like Senator Chip Canson and the governor that are really interested in helping to facilitate that, that end goal. So we are at about 3 million acres of protection in South Carolina. So we're a state with 20.5 acres. We know we're not getting any bigger. <laughs> Right. So, so we still have we still have a way to go to get that thirty percent. We do. We've got a way to go to more than double the amount of acres that have been protected over forty plus years of of land conservation, and to do that um, by twenty fifty is an ambitious is an ambitious goal. Well, you want to do what the folks on Edisto Island have done with the land trust where. Almost half the island's under protection. That's right. Yes, and and you know that's really interesting that you mention half, because there's some some leading scientists, folks like E.O. Wilson, up in Harvard, and others that have looked at the challenges we're facing, the environmental challenges, the challenges of of climate change, and they've said we need to protect about fifty percent of our land in order to sustain humans and, and nature into the future. And it's an ambitious goal. E.O. Wilson actually wrote a book called Half Earth based on that premise. And, of course, he actually got his, his love of the land in my home turf down in Mobile Bay. That's right. I love that you know that, playing with insects as a child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't play with insects as a child. I went to historic forts instead. <laughs> <laughs> we know where that ended up. <laughs> um, when we talked about small projects, and I'm looking at the list, you've got three acres in Williamsburg, the Mill Street Landing. Oh, I love that you ask about that. What is the Mill Street Landing? <laughs> Well, there is a much larger story to be told about the work on the Black River in South Carolina um, as a showcase of what's happening in conservation. But the Mill Street Landing is a beautiful little site that sits on the river. It's walking distance to downtown Kingstree. And in recent years, the town of Kingstree, in an effort to to creatively revitalize their downtown, went through a revisioning and a rebranding process. And they decided to really tie the future fate of Kingstree to the beautiful scenic Black River that runs through Kingstree that's always been so important to them economically. And so they created a new tagline that says, Kingstree, the crown of the Black River. But they didn't really have that walkable park site within walking distance of, of downtown where folks could eat dinner and then walk down to see the river or even paddle up from somewhere else, pull up their kayak and walk into, into downtown King Street for the river. So this Mill Street Landing, also now named King Street's Black River Landing, is that site for them. And so this is part of a bigger project and that is the Black River. And that's actually how our interview came about because folks from that area were talking to me about the Black River, and I said, well, what is that? And the next thing I know, I'm getting all sorts of information about OSI and your efforts over there. So let's just 
moved straight to the Black River. Well, gosh, we're going to need another hour. <laughs> I would love to um, to tell the story of where we are with conservation in the Black River. And I, I do want to kind of start at the beginning. So the Black River is just one of these incredible coastal plain watersheds. It's a true South Carolina Blackwater River. It's all within the coastal plain. It's all within the bounds of South Carolina. It runs about 150 miles. And the navigable portion of that river runs through Williamsburg and Georgetown County. And for years, there had been just a slow, kind of uncelebrated progression of conservation efforts along the river that was largely a private effort. So we had folks um, that own land that were doing conservation easements. We had some investment in private preserves. The Nature Conservancy owns a 2,000-acre riverfront preserve. Um, the Butler Conservation Fund came in and, and has established a 1,000-acre preserve that's also public access. But we didn't have a public partner on the river. And so, gosh, almost... Eight years ago now, uh, when I was with the Nature Conservancy, we got a call from Georgetown County about a property that was on the river. It was called Rocky Point, um, and it was an old it was an old rice field plantation property. But it's one that International Paper owned, and International Paper was in the process of divesting their land owings to uh, to a company based in Birmingham. And they had made this particular property and several other in Georgetown County accessible to the public during their ownership. But in the process of transferring their ownership, some of these parks were lost. They were closed. Um, And the new owner, it didn't make sense for them to continue to offer those through a dollar lease to the county. So the county came to us and said, we want this park. We want this park back. And um, the conservation groups came together. We found a little over $3 million to purchase the property on behalf of the county. And we now have Rocky Point Community Forest established. It's altogether a 680-acre property. And since we've already talked about King Street's Mill Street Landing, Rocky Point represents the terminus of the new Black River Water Trail. Kingstree's Mill Street Landing represents the launch point. So we have a 70-mile corridor between Kingstree almost to the confluence of the Black and Petey River that we are uh, working with just an incredible array of partners. We have a 30-person steering committee working to steer this vision to create South Carolina's first new state park in 20 years and to identify properties along the river to be purchased and protected and to move into the ownership and stewardship of state parks. But within this park network, we have town parks like King's Trees. We have county parks like Rocky Point. We have the state park and private parks. So a, a huge complex of parks that will allow folks to come and, and experience that river. If you were to kayak, get on at, at Mill Street Landing, could you kayak very nicely down to uh, Georgetown County? We have very strategically worked on the location and positions of these of these park properties that to allow someone to do that. So the idea is that this would actually create a really unique um, recreational experience that could be a draw for people from across the southeast or even beyond the southeast, the paddlers and other river enthusiasts that want to come and put in at King Street and spend four or five days paddling the 70 miles all the way down to Rocky Point. If they want, they can keep going to the Atlantic Ocean. Well, just remind folks who come that are not from around here that you don't paddle close to the shore or under the trees. <laughs> you, you can always keep an eye out for snakes as you're, <laughs> and snags as you're paddling along. Yeah. Is the state park, has that been finalized? Did it actually come into existence or is it still in the 
almost stage. You know, South Carolina State Parks has announced their partnership on the Black River. Last year, we had an announcement when they accepted title to the first piece of property, which was a 310-acre property, just a few miles downstream from King Street, about 10 miles downstream from King Street. So yes, we can say that officially there will be a state park on the Black River. It will take some time to develop these parks. It'll take investment. We're thinking strategically about the state, federal, and private investment that'll allow the, what's now raw land to actually become incredible public assets and parks for people in that region. Okay. Any other particular projects in the state? Lawrence County, I've got it circled here, the number of projects there. There's this cluster, and again, uh, I was surprised pleasantly. Nice. You know, we we work in so many different ways. One of the roles that we play that we've had the chance to play with some of our upstate partners is actually as an entity that gives la- that gives loans. So OSI is in a position to to loan funding at a really low interest rate um, to some of our other conservation partners to help get work done in South Carolina. So some of those upstate projects are, are an array of our loan projects. Um, one of our newest projects is in Lexington County, so not not far from where we, where we are today. It's in collaboration with uh, the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources to add to the Congaree Creek Heritage Preserve. You're talking about Boyd Island? That's right. So that's, that's a really unique opportunity to protect to protect, to almost double the size of that heritage preserve, really in an urban context. You know, it's right outside of Casey, and there's a lot of developed land around that around that site. But here's an opportunity to protect some beautiful, intact natural resources and add to one of our mid-state heritage preserves. Um, another really exciting project that we have going down in the Port Royal Sound area in Jasper County is also in partnership with uh, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. And it's a 3,800-acre tract that we've been working on called the Slater Tract. It helps to protect a, a huge amount of property in an area with a lot of development pressure. It creates somewhat of a bridge between two of our historic uh, conservation landscapes, the Ace Basin mm-hmm. and the Savannah River area, which we call the Southern Low Country. You know, each of these conservation landscapes in the coast have modeled ourselves to some extent after the Ace Basin, which was such and is such a huge success as a landscape scale conservation project. When I was in grad school and I took landscape ecology, the Ace Basin was the example in the textbook about public-private partnerships to protect land at a landscape scale. So the Slater Track creates somewhat of a bridge between these two historic landscape conservation initiatives, protects that Port Royal Sound watershed, and really protect some unique habitat down in the lower part of the state. One of the things I know you've also worked on is with communities to protect watersheds because as we get more heavy rains, if the swamps are not there to absorb the water, then we're going to have, Conway's going to have a problem. That's right. Yes, we talk a lot about the link between land protection and flood mitigation. So we know that our our natural lands, our mature forested wetlands that line South Carolina's beautiful rivers and some of the uplands that um, continue on from there are sponges. I mean, it's there's some very clear evidence about the relationship between leaving the, those floodplain areas in a natural state with mature forest and the direct impact that can have on the communities surrounding it as as deferred cost for them. Um, One of the studies that we talk about, the Nature Conservancy took the lead on right around Conway, we saw that that 40,000-acre area right around Conway, the floodplain forest of the Waccamaw, 
on a um, per event basis, we're keeping about 1.5 feet of water out of the homes and businesses in Conway and saving between $1.5 and $8 million per storm event in cost to, to repairing damages. So is Conway going to take action? or You know, Conway has been an incredible partner in conservation over the years, and they have been part of the conservation community. That's something that we've seen more and more of. I would say we've expanded the table, and we're seeing town planners and city administrators and county officials joining that task force of folks working on conservation because folks see that direct link between helping to mitigate for floods. You know, the the fascinating thing about protecting these floodplains is they absorb the waters when they're high and they help to slowly release and actually protect us from drought when when water is low and rainfall is has fallen off. And these towns also, some of our rural towns are seeing the the possibilities in growing a natural resource economy, that protecting natural resources and giving people access to them is one of the ways they can actually grow their economy. They can increase visitorship, they can increase quality of life, and it, it's a real draw for their communities. I just remember, I guess it was about 10 years ago, when we were going through a period of drought and saltwater intrusion was coming in, for example, almost up the river to Brown's Ferry. That's right. I remember seeing a, a dolphin swim by at our little cabin on Mingo Creek <laughs> during that same drought. Well, it also came close to cutting off Myrtle Beach's freshwater supply. That's right. So there really are some interesting studies that show us you know, what the benefit of things like how, how we manage our dams is really important. We've got to have enough water coming down river to, to protect those communities that are going to be vulnerable and our, our surface water intakes that are vulnerable to salinity intrusion. But another way we can do that is to actually protect our floodplain forest. We in South Carolina have a problem because a lot of our rivers don't originate here. We talked about the PD and its headwaters are up in North Carolina, the Catawba. So riparian rights, which is a, not something that everybody wants to get into, but a longtime friend, and Bill Workman's been dead for now, sadly, for 20-some-odd years. He was very concerned about riparian rights, and he couldn't get anybody to get involved. And he kept saying, What's going to happen if they decide to really cut off the Catawba or they really want to do something with the PD? Uh, uh, or it's actually the Yadkin up there. Mm-hmm. But, but we are dependent on that water flow. That's right. No, I think that is a great point. And, you know, we, we have to have that communication with our neighbors. I think sometimes in South Carolina we've taken our water for granted. You know, it's been such a plentiful resource compared to Western states it certainly warrants our attention to think about things like how these dams in North Carolina are, are managed. And I will say that when relicensing has occurred in dams even in North Carolina, there have been a lot of South Carolina partners at the table. Folks from American Rivers and the Nature Conservancy sat on panels and task force groups really um, helping to bring the natural resource perspective and South Carolina's perspective to the table when we relicense dams. Well, and you also mentioned the Savannah River, and I guess our nightmare is if, if Atlanta decides to stick its intake pipe into the, into the Savannah, because that already, I mean, that supplies water to lots of South Carolina communities. That's right. I mean, the Savannah is its own fascinating, um, complex problem with a shared boundary, right, on both sides of the river. It is a river we share equally with Georgia. In this case, we might be thankful for the Savannah River plant because there has to be a water flow that's regulated to go by there. So that kind of keeps other folks from dipping their pipes in and taking and diminishing the water flow that affects all of South Carolina. Yeah. that Savannah River site is a is a is a big core protected 
piece of property in South Carolina. And, um, you know, one of our, our many unique partners that I think we can say we have in conservation. And it includes other Department of Defense properties and bases. We often see a real effort by the Department of Defense to protect land around military bases, and they become another one of our advocates for conservation in that way. Well, we'll pick that up when we get back, because right now we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Mariah Whitehead about the Open Space Institute and land conservation in South Carolina. Before we did our station ID, we were talking about the Department of Defense and conservation. And in March of 2022, the Marine Corps is very concerned about Paris Island and wetlands and protection of it's it's a it's a national defense issue. So, yes, absolutely. Yes, it is. Um, it's such a a wonderful and unanticipated partnership that we have with our military bases, what we call the REPI program, the the Readiness and Environmental Protection Program of the Department of Defense, acknowledges that, you know, really having human development and lots of of people right around our military bases is is sometimes a challenge for their defense missions. And so by working in collaboration with conservation groups, we've seen a lot of efforts to protect land right around military bases across the southeast. We've seen a lot of this in coastal Georgia, some of it in, in South Carolina. And, um, and that's interesting that you mentioned our Beaufort County bases as well, because we've, they've got the extra challenge of some, some changing um, Geology and the fact that sea level rise and other issues actually threaten that base. And and I I think that very recently with Paris Island, there has been a, a, a conservation effort uh, to stop development, which actually helps their training areas. Absolutely. That that is the thought that by by protecting land around these bases that it can facilitate training and other critical mission. If we've got planes taking off and landing, they don't have the conflict of people complaining about those planes or the worry that a plane might go down in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many qu- sort of mission critical aspects to retaining just a rural landscape uh, around those bases. Well, I've got to say another shout out for Paris Island because they have been so helpful to historians and archaeologists with the discovery of Santa Elena and Charles mm-hmm. Fort and the cooperation there. It's been incredible over the decades, literally decades of work. That is really mm-hmm. cool. And I and I like that you mentioned just the natural collaboration between protecting cultural resources and, and natural resources. That is... Um, that is a marriage made in heaven, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the Southeast because now you, I'm talking to the vice president <laughs> for the Southeast. Describe what you got to do. Well, I mm. will say, you know, we, we are Southeast wide and we are mostly housed in Charleston. So as you can see from the map, so many of our projects have been in, um, in South Carolina but we've done projects in North Carolina and just in the past three years have had some incredible partnerships and projects in coastal Georgia and in, in central Georgia. So maybe, gosh, three and a half years ago, we got a call from one of our partners down in Georgia to participate in some um, just really threatened large acreage properties and in the span of two and a half years, we'd protected 27,000 acres in two transactions in coastal Georgia. And conservation easement parks, or what? how are, how are those 21,000 acres being used? You know, the, these are both properties that have gone into ownership with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. So they're new wildlife management areas that allow for public access, and they'll be Managed exclusively for wildlife habitat. 
they are both projects that benefited from the Kings Bay Naval Base. So a perfect example of what we just talked about, that REPI funds through the Department of Defense helped to protect those properties, along with three other sources of federal funding from Department of Agriculture and Fish and Wildlife Service, state funding, private money that helped to pull off those transactions. And what's been exciting for me with a really 15-year history of working in conservation just in South Carolina is to get to go to other states and learn, learn some new things, learn how other partners are doing conservation in other parts of the Southeast. So it was your job to pull together all those sources, right? It, we were working hand in glove with uh, Georgia Department of Natural Resources to pull all those sources together. In the, in the case of these 27,000 acres, both of those projects we did in partnership with other big conservation organizations, the 11,000-acre track we did with the Nature Conservancy, a 16,000-acre track we did with the Conservation Fund, and that's another example of when we're stronger together. Um, both transactions, the, the NGOs, the conservation groups were taking a leap of faith and securing the properties before we knew where all the money was going to come from for their ultimate protection. And so that's a role that we play over and over again. We're nimble and we know our properties on the market are threatened. We can work together to secure it and hold it while our state partner goes and writes 15 grants <laughs> to buy it back from us. So you don't have to write the 15 grants. You know, sometimes we are writing the 15 grants. We're helping a lot. Um, we, are, we are really right there in lockstep with the agency partners and often assisting with those grants and identifying the resources. Would it be fair to say that we've talked about all the local agencies? You're, you're kind of the... Um, Somebody's working on a project and they can't quite make it happen, and then they call the cavalry. <laughs> I love it. Yes. And in, in this case, it's OSI, right? Right. I would say we are we are um, called in to help sometimes, and and you know it's been important to OSI coming into the southeast to be invited into projects. I mean. It, Nobody, there was no interest in, in taking over anyone else's niche, right? We wanted to come in and play a role where we could be most useful. And that's what we've seen, that, that when things need, when, it, when they're complicated, when we need a quick transaction, there's often been a role um, for OSI. And we've talked about the fact that we work with all these state agencies you know, we work with all of the federal agencies in South Carolina, but also often with our local land trust mm -hmm. groups to help identify funding and, and to get jobs done. We're working with more and more with smaller towns and municipalities as well. We've talked about wetlands and what have you. Let's talk about clean water. We do have some issues in South Carolina. And we understand the relationship between between intact natural systems, buffers along our streams and rivers, and clean water in South Carolina. There have been some really fascinating studies and just another suite of partnerships. Um, first, along the Savannah River, there was a, a task force that assembled there to really put some thought into the context of the watershed of the Savannah. How much of that do we need to protect to sort of secure the clean water that is the drinking water for those downstream communities there? And so the conservation groups and um, other state agencies partnered up with our water utilities in that, that part of the world and started to really pick apart the science of how much of this watershed do we want to see in permanent protection in order to secure the fate of this drinking water into the, into the future. And it goes into what we've already talked about, too, in order to make sure that we have that downstream flow that helps to keep salinity intrusion at bay as well. And what we know is there's a, there's a breaking point with clean water, that we need to see about 70% of that watershed 
stay in an intact forested complex to really deliver that water downstream. So that's a relationship. We can look all over our state. We know where we have um, surface water withdrawals that provide water to the people of the state for drinking water. And we know sort of what needs to happen upstream to make sure that's a resource that we continue to protect. The cost of protecting those forests compared to water treatment facilities is, you know, $1 compared to $10 probably. It is vastly less expensive to protect the watershed. So when we're talking about the watershed of the Savannah, we're talking about all the streams that eventually come, whether it's the Chattooga or... You know, in this case, we're really looking upstream to about the Savannah River site, as you said. So we're looking at that corridor from the Savannah River site on down to where the Savannah enters the the Atlantic Ocean. Clean water is important. It really is. Yeah, we have such and we have such fascinating examples across the state. Um, with this nexus of water and conservation. In, in the upstate, you know, our watersheds for drinking water look a little different with the hills. And we often have sort of a standalone protected watershed and a basin that's helping to, to supply water. So Greenville County's watershed is actually a 20,000-acre easement held by the Nature Conservancy. And so there's a there's a just incredible partnership there with a conservation NGO and the supply of clean water to our upstate <laughs> citizens. We've talked about clean water. We've talked about watersheds. We've talked about wetlands. Uh, what about people just getting out and enjoying the nature? The world that you grew up in or the Mobile Bay that I crabbed and fished in as a, as a child? That, that you, you, you were mentioning what we often call um, the three legs of the stool, really what helps us build just an incredible argument for why this work is so important in South Carolina. And it really mirrors what we're hearing out of the state leaders on conservation and what's coming out of the Floodwater Commission um, that the governor helped to pull together. So those three legs... Flood mitigation and clean water, access and recreation, and then opportunities for rural economic development are sort of the three legs of the stool that we think about in conservation. But what we know, especially through COVID, is that people yearn to have spaces and easy access to places outdoors. And we saw parks, visitorship, folks heading to wildlife refuges and national forests, our state parks, our national parks, in higher numbers than we've ever seen during the pandemic. Because people wanted places they could safely be together. People needed a respite. They needed, you know, places where they could, where they could relax and be restored. And it turned out those out door spaces were more important than ever. And so there really has been an awakening, I think, again, to the importance of folks all over this all over our state and all over the country having access to natural spaces for that passive recreation to go hiking and camping and exploring, birding, um, kayaking, you name it. Those are those are activities that folks want to be able to engage in, and they shouldn't have to drive hours to get to them. Based upon what I've been able to read, uh, statistics from not just South Carolina, that uptick in usage is continuing. As COVID has waned, uh, people still are going out. They They have, as you said, rediscovered the joy of just taking a hike along the Congaree River. I think we really have seen that. I think people got a taste for all the things that being outdoors can bring, and and that's really been sustained. Well, I guess in this busy world, the the old cliche, you stop and smell the roses. In this case, (laughs) this time of year, inhale the pine pollen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that, but but the the Midlands is you know in March we there are yellow clouds everywhere. That's right. Okay. Mariah, uh, Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. Any last words you have for our listeners? 
You know, um, I have a quote that that I love to to repeat, and and I think it's I think it it applies to our conversation today. We've talked a lot about the broadening community of conservation. Um, we've talked about the fact we live in a state where people really care about the natural world. Um, Wendell Berry had a definition of community, and I and I love to think about this as something we can all seek to do as a community that supports conservation. And he said, uh, community is the condition that a knowing, of knowing that a place is shared and that the people that share that place define and limit the possibilities. So that's my challenge um, for us as a state, that we really define and limit the, the possibilities with the land of South Carolina. Okay, that's powerful. Dr. Mariah Whitehead, Vice President for the Southeast of the Open Space Institute. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was a pleasure to have Dr. Mariah Whitehead back on the show, especially to find out about the coordination of conservation efforts across South Carolina and the cooperation and collaboration from local land trusts to national and international organizations and government at all levels to help protect South Carolina's precious land resources. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.